0: I'm Kyle Salmon. And I'm Corey Astle. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast about conservative ideas and thinkers. We explore what it means to call yourself a conservative, where conservatism has been, and where it's going. Each week, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. Join the conversation by liking us on Facebook or following us on Twitter, at ConsMinds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode 70, we read Alienated America by Tim Carney, published in
1: 2019. Tim Carney is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute where he works on economic competition, civil society and religion in America issues. He's also the commentary editor and a columnist at the Washington Exam- Examiner. Carney's work has been published in a variety of media major media outlets, You've probably seen him. He has a bachelor's degree from St. John's College in Annapolis. He lives with his wife and children in Montgomery County, Maryland. All right, so Carney tells us the purpose of this Book. He says this is a book about Trump's core supporters who voted for him in the GOP primaries. Now let's back up. We're not talking about 2020. We're not even talking about the general election in 2016. We're talking about who voted for Trump in the Republican primaries in 2016. So in January, February, March, April of 2016, Trump versus it wasn't Trump versus Hillary, it was Trump versus Jeb Bush, and Marco Rubio. Ted Cruz, uh, John Kasich, and so forth. So this is a book about Trump's core supporters who voted for him in the GOP primaries at that time. The Republicans' nomination of Trump is best understood as a referendum on whether America is currently great or in need of great making again, Carney says. The 2016 election wasn't about the man or his party. It was a referendum on whether the American dream was still alive. Trump's central message... Was the American dream is dead, and so what caused the American dream to die? Carney says the materialistic view of the American dream misses the point. That being like, you know, most liberals will say, well, it's uh, it's all economic, you know, the it's the it's the same sort of uh, Marxist theory that everything is uh, eco- economically based, and so that's why people are upset. Carney says, maybe the things we think accompany the American dream are the things that really are the American dream. This book will take, a tour, get, take us on a tour to understand how to measure the good life, a study of place, social capital, community, and church. Carney says he's going to teach us here in this book. His argument is, at the root of the most significant problems America faces at home is the weakening of our core institutions, family and community, church and school, business and labor associations, civic, and fraternal organizations. Strong communities function as safety nets and grounds on which people can exercise their social and political muscles. These are where we find purpose. So Kearney says the story of election 2016, the story of the working class struggle in America, the story of rising suicides and crumbling families, and the story of growing inequality and falling economic mobility is properly understood as the story of the dissolution of civil society.
0: Yeah, I think he gets gets right to it. And he starts out in kind of the same place a lot of us did in 2016, looking at the socioeconomic causes. Because like you said, that's mostly what you heard. And it's often how we've heard the American dream characterized, as, as through the lens of employment, you know, and sort of can you do better than your dad did and your granddad did? You know, will each generation have a chance to move up, maybe get education or training or something that'll get us ahead? you know, move from lower class to middle class and maybe even a, to have a shot at being rich. But, and, and Carney starts out looking at that way. He talks about, you know, about factories moving out and, and, you know, joblessness and how that affects uh, wage earners, you know, parents, especially men. But it's clearly a lot more to it than that. And I, I thought it was interesting is one of the things he, uh, he did in, in traveling around to these different towns across America to sort of get a view on the ground of how things goes he went to one of the oil boom towns in north dakota during the height of the fracking uh, revolution when guys were pouring in from across the country just like an old an old west uh, gold rush you know But except it was it was for fracking so there were all of a sudden there were a lot of these blue collar guys who wherever they were from maybe it wasn't great economically but now they're getting guys were making crazy money up there you know uh, Job, they were they were begging workers to come in there was no unemployment in the area you know they were just throwing money at these guys uh for hard work and you know does that bring back civil society and he looked around i think it was uh williston north carolina and uh there wasn't much civil society you know just just throwing the money at the problem that's part of it like when the when the jobs went some other things went with them but clearly just just jobs isn't the whole answer and i thought that was uh it was a good way to illustrate that.
1: Yeah, it was a fascinating study because he didn't. I mean, it's hard to create that in nature, and here we had in Williston, North Dakota. So I, I think um, I think it's interesting. Carney starts the book by saying, again, we're making that he's making this comparison with Trump versus the other contenders in the GOP prime, presidential primary, because I mean, what he's really trying to say. Is that there was a difference between the people who supported Trump? These are the core Trump supporters versus those who were just run-of-the-mill Republicans, as Carney says here. During the primaries, Trump, by most measures, was less conservative than even John Kasich, who was considered the moderate. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think a lot of us, even at that time in 2016, thought like this guy isn't a re- isn't actually conservative. <laughs> but uh, as a general rule, Carney says you can use Trump's electoral strength in the early GOP primaries as a proxy for pessimism. Trump country is the places where hope is low and where the good life appears out of reach. In contrast, where Trump bombed are the places where you can sniff out confidence, optimism, hope, and the American dream. And, and he spends, uh, you know, chapters kind of breaking this down, but more or less Trump country, according to Carney, he says, are people are alienated, abandoned, lacking social ties and community. Those are the folks who rush to Trump death rates, especially death by suicide and overdose, correlated with Trump's best counties, Edu- educational attainment is lower in Trump country, more people on unemployment, more on disability, more men having dropped out of the workforce, marriage rates are lower, illegitimacy, that's child uh, bearing out of wedlock, was higher, divorce is higher. Trump did actually did better among people who didn't go to church. I think we'll get into this a little bit more later. But compare that to the counties where he did the least well, again, in the Republican primaries, Carney says people enmeshed in strong communities rejected Trump in the early primaries. You can boil the anti-Trump places in the early primaries down to two categories, highly educated elites and tight-knit religious communities, such as like Mormon community in Salt Lake, or he highlights these uh, Dutch uh, Protestant communities in in uh, the Midwest. Strong institutions of civil society, local governments, churches, country clubs, garden clubs, good public schools and meeting places, those community institutions constitute the infrastructure that's necessary to support families those are the places that actually voted for trump um, at a much lower rate and uh, so he's really distilling it down and sort of showing us like how how did trump win in 2016 well there was a group of people who really felt left behind alienated abandoned folks are just not doing well and uh, that's where trump did the best versus where he did the worst. It's like the the counties that had the highest income or the most community ties, usually religious ties are the ones where he did the worst. Pretty fascinating stuff,
0: huh? It really is. It's a good insight. And I know we, some of the, you could tell something was changing even during the primaries because the way it, the way it shook out wasn't the traditional lines, the way things are divided. You know, he talks about this, how in Iowa, and there's always a lot of data on Iowa because there's always so many candidates still in the race at that point, you know, it usually broke down into like the urban moderate Republican versus the rural conservative Republican. But that's not mm-hmm. this time, you know, I mean, the rural areas were divided along the lines you talked about, you know, the the communities that still had those strong institutions, especially in the, the Dutch, uh, the heavily Dutch part of uh, Northwestern Iowa were voting completely differently from other farming communities in the same state. And yeah. I think it was an interesting point too that he's he's not just saying places that are more poverty stricken or more, you know, dissolute in some kind of way, but places that used to have those same kind of community strict structures and now don't. Right. Right. And, and among the, the people voting for Trump were not necessarily the ones who were the most harmed by that directly. In in that, you know, they might still have jobs and they might still some of them might still go to church might be involved in the community but when they look around they see everything else crumbling you know they they see their neighbors on hard times or families on hard times and you know even if they're still trying to keep it together looking around saying that you know why shouldn't i be pessimistic everything's falling apart here whereas these folks in the in the the, uh, towns that had it more together whether through churches or or just because it was a rich place they're looking around saying things are great, you know, I mean, I, I remember hearing that, you know, from after the primaries, you know, America is great already was I think something that the Clinton campaign tried to push, yeah, and it, you know it really, as Carney points out, it really depends on where you stand. I mean, I remember thinking, yeah, it actually is pretty great, but I'm doing all right, and my town's doing all right, you know, and it it's if everybody around you was was flailing and everything was falling apart, it's it, it I could see how. Some of these folks really just were looking for answers, you know, for somebody who's going to say, "Yeah, it's bad. I will fix it," you know. Whereas right. everybody yeah. was saying, you know, it was all the rah rah. This is the greatest country, and you know, it is the greatest country in my opinion. But there, they, I, I think it felt like a lot of the other Republican primary candidates were looking past the some of the real problems in these communities, including in traditionally conservative communities. And Trump wasn't looking past them; he was he was pointing them out in his own way.
1: I think that's a great point because I also remember my my own thinking back in 2016, thinking like, I actually think America is pretty great. (laughs) So, you know, um, you know, and so when we're when he was, his mantra was "Make America Great Again," as we know, MAGA. It's kind of like, well, what was it that was so that was great before, and that is not now. Well, Carney dives into that a little bit. And, you know, I think both parties, Republican and Democrats, like point to the 1950s for different reasons, because what's what's the old what's the old uh, joke that uh, Democrats wish they could work in the 1950s and Republicans wish they could live there. And uh, but anyway, for for the, the MAGA crowd at the time, it's like Trump saying, let's go back to the old days. And I think you articulated some of it, you know, like there used to be. This is what Carney finds later, but uh, that, that there was some pretty thick uh, community and and social uh, capital. But it's also the case that, you know, like there's a, there's a fair criticism, and Carney raises this, that he says people like to describe the 1950s as a decade of conformity. This is the critique of it. Some of that conformity was really the virtues of the era, such as more income inequality and more intact families. I mean, so Democrats would focus on the income inequality of the 50s, and I think conservatives would... Would focus on the fact that the, the families were more more intact, that uh, he says, in the 1950s, the white male American was protected from competition. So more opportunity from women, minorities, and immigrants meant a harder time for white male Americans. In this light, Hillary's harsh critique of Trump country has, has some merit, Carney says, asserting that America was once great can be seen as looking back at a lost protection privilege. Now, of course, this is absolutely what we hear from from liberals and and the woke left, for uh, of course, and mm-hmm. I'm not saying that there isn't some some real uh, serious reason for critique here. And I, I think that they have have reason to um, to raise this. But as Carney says, that writing of male dominance is bad news for working class men who who haven't adapted to a more meritocratic era, and therefore lack the resources of training, of imagination, and of opportunity to adapt to the new demands. Because then, you know, he talks about manufacturing. You mentioned this, like manufacturing, the percentage of the of the population that works in manufacturing has gone way down while the actual output has stayed steady or increased. So America still is a manufacturing leader in the world. It's just that we do more of it with machines than with people. And then what that means is it's a lot of factory workers, white male men who, who have are the are the losers in that in that game?
0: Yeah, and I think um, I think you hear both sides of that statistic quoted by different parties too. You know, I mean, when Trump was saying manufacturing employment so low, you know, it's because we're we're losing to China and everything. Democrats would say, look, we manufacture more than ever. You know, and both those things are true, but you know, it's uh, there's more to the story in each of them. Uh, and Carney kind of digs into that here. I liked how he kind of got into the idea of. We've heard a lot about work and, the, and the, the sort of virtue of work and dignity of it. I think the way he describes work as formative, and especially regular employment as opposed to temporary or gig employment as, as, as formative and preparing men especially, but you know women too, but preparing men for the idea of you know a marriage, a life, fatherhood. I thought that was really interesting kind of made me think of, I think it was Yuval Levin's book when he talked about formation versus performance and how institutions used to form us for life. And I kind of liked how he got into um, the idea of working a regular job, eight hours a day, going in every day, you know, for weeks for years and, you know, just showing up doing the job is, that seems basic, but it, it, if you don't have that experience growing up, it's, it's a way that you could learn it and, it and it can form you into the kind of person who does his job every day, whether his job is his employment or his job is his you know, marriage or his parenthood. I thought that was really fascinating about how it kind of tied in scattered employment and you know, sporadic things. And, and the way so many things work now with subcontractors and sub subcontractors and, and, and gigs and, and, you know, there's sort of, you know, one day I'm working 12 hours, next week I've got nothing. That's not formative in the same way. Yeah. It, it's, and it kind of, I don't know if, I don't know if it's a coincidence, but it's certain, I, the, the causation makes sense to me, you know, that the guy who, his job is like that and his relationships with women are like that. And, you know, his, just the way he lives is catch as catch can and who knows what it's going to be. And that's, that's no way to build a, a solid life. I mean, you can survive people you know i i did a variety of temp jobs myself it, you know it, it pays the bills but it doesn't um it's not steady or comfortable or capable of moving
1: up yeah yeah he, i i think you're right kearney makes that just really kind of unique argument that where liberals will say well the reason the families are broken apart is because there's not good jobs and what we have the point that you made about the wilson north north dakota situation is that when well, Carney says when the factories die, marriage dies too, and he he goes through a lot of proof of that, showing that uh, when when those factory jobs uh, kind of went away, marriages started to plummet for for working class. But when the good jobs, he says, when good jobs, paying jobs pop up, though, marriage does not necessarily come back. And that he you know he's referencing that Wilson study that that you described. Married men make more money, he says, but making more money doesn't get you married and and so he makes then he makes so then it's kind of like well what does get you married then mm-hmm. and he makes that unique argument that you just described it waking up every day punching a clock being forcing to be dependable is very different than the situation we have now i mean i have quite a few friends that i would you know was probably in the bucket of white working class and family members and uh I, what you described i think is pretty common i mean they bounce around a lot, you know, and in this job today and in, in something else tomorrow, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes it's, uh, it's temp work, you know, sometimes it's like gig type work. And, uh, it's very different than seven, you know, seven thirty AM you punch the clock, you know, <laughs> and you come in and it's all about dependability and responsibility and showing up. And maybe the jobs are a little more interesting today. I don't know if they are, maybe they are, maybe they aren't like having a predictable shift versus, you know, having, unpredictable shifts or what uh, a uh, schedule that changes every week or that sort of thing but yeah really fascinating argument that I'd never really heard quite like that before
0: yeah that was moving on me too and I, I think it's I, he made the point in here somewhere
1: that even if the money were the
0: same in both kinds of employment most people prefer the the steadiness because you can plan yeah and that, definitely you can't you know when somebody's life is not together you can't plan on them you know, you can't yeah. on them, and that's maybe that's part of the marriage thing, too. Is, you know, if this uh, woman's looking at this guy like, I don't know if he's going to have a job from week to week. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's not all about that. But that's that's kind of important, you know, when you're trying to start a family and a life together. I know that's part of, I think, what's missing when you look at it from a straight economics argument, even though you can study these things. It's not all about the dollars and cents. You know, somebody might make more money going up to a boon town like uh, Williston, but that's, and you, you can't build a life on that because once the wells are drilled. That's it. You know, there's some jobs still there, but it's not a, a permanent situation. So you've got guys jumping from thing to thing and, you know, some of them are doing well, but there's a, uh, there's no one to bring it home to.
1: Right. And, uh, and the point that you made there, that there is, a, this is something Carney talks about asymmetry, he says when a local economy finds itself facing more foreign competition it's it also increases the share of young men in labor local labor market who earn less so in other words when when young men in a lo- local labor market start le- earning less money either because the because the factory shut down or you know foreign competition will say or whatever, then that increases the number of young men who earn less than women have the same age race and education and then what ends up happening is in those situations that reduces the prevalence, he says, of marriage among young women because young women don't really want to marry a guy who's bouncing from job to job, I guess. I don't blame them. Mm -hmm. Whereas, he says, analogous shocks to female labor demand. If something were to happen to female labor demand, that actually significantly raises the prevalence of marriage. So women are more likely to get married when when their job prospects are poor, less likely to get married when male job prospects are poor. Yeah, and to me that's just a huge insight, and and you know we've talked about this on many many different episodes about how it used to be that if you had a strong back and willing to, willingness to work, you could make a good living. These days, I mean, it's so much so much of our economy is service. Like, there's no advantage of men over women when it comes to working at McDonald's or mm-hmm. or or uh, at the at JCPenney or something like that versus you know, on a, on an actual construction project, frankly, most construction men don't have a, necessarily an advantage either. It may be more of an interest, but when you're, when you're talking about running a, a front loader or something, you know, like you don't need to be strong to do that either. Yeah.
0: It's not, it's not carrying bricks and, uh, you know, digging ditches as it used to be. Yeah. That's, that is interesting. I mean, I think he, um, he makes a good point that bringing back everything that's outsourced doesn't bring back every job that left, but it does bring back some. And I think that's that's something that we need to think about because, yeah, it's going to be a lot of robots. I mean, you know, because repetitive type things, like he talks he talks about some a factory he visited a while ago, where a guy was just doing the same thing for hours and hours. And that, yeah, that's going to be a robot for sure because they don't want to pay a, a person wages and benefits for that. But it's not going to be all robots, you know. I mean, it's um, there was a scene in the Minority Report where there was a, a fight scene in a car factory. And it was no, there was nobody in the factory. It was just robots putting together cars, and you know, it was that's. There's no even the most modern factory on Earth doesn't look like that, you know, and yeah. probably never will. There's always going to be somebody supervising, somebody doing the the fine tuning and the inspection. So, I mean, those jobs maybe you need a little more than the strong back, but it seems like the sort of thing a person could be trained for without much, you know, that much effort. But yeah, I mean, I don't mean to uh, get off on a tangent, but I did. I did think he. I thought it was f- fair to look at both sides of that, you know, that mm-hmm. it's not, you know, but I, I, I think there's more to it. I think there's definitely a, something to bringing those back, if it were possible, that even if a lot of those jobs are lost in
1: translation,
0: some, some are going to stay here.
1: I mean, I think we could ag- agree that uh, there are so many variables, that automation mm-hmm. is one major variable, but, you know, so is like our, our big bet with China that hasn't paid off. Um, so is like increased immigration, obviously lowers wages. So mm-hmm. anyway, he, he, uh, he spends a chapter on marriage, which, you know, is something that we've talked about in many podcasts, Charles Murray, Charles Murray, and also Robert Putnam. He's quoted throughout this book. I think Putnam's books are fantastic. Bowling alone and our kids uh, books that I've read in the past. And maybe we should cover on the podcast at some point, but, mm-hmm. and, and Putnam, we should mention is, is a, a liberal sociologist. He's not, uh, unlike Charles. You know, Charles Murray is more of a libertarian, but they come to the same conclusions, which is basically that marriage is really important for men. Carney says the most profound social change in America over the past two generations has been the retreat of marriage. Marriage is less common. Single motherhood is more common. Fractured households are increasingly normal. About 40 percent of America, 40 percent of children in America are born out of wedlock. He says, youths who grow up with both biological parents earn more income, work more hours each week, and are more likely to be married themselves as adults. A child will see the best outcomes in childhood and adulthood if she is raised by both of her biological parents with those parents being married. Married men make more money. People raised in intact families also made more, and were more likely to go to college and finish it. There's, there's just endless amounts of data that show that men do very well in marriage. They, they make more money. They have more, uh, steadier employment. The kids obviously have much better outcomes. And now this isn't to say that those people who, who've gotten divorced or have untraditional families, non-traditional families are are morally bad or anything like that. We're not saying that at all. It's just, this is more of an ideal to, to think about. And he also had the great insight here that, again, we have probably t- talked about this a little bit before, but I think it's worth mentioning again. The usual explanation for why marriage has gone down, the usual explanation is the liberation of career women. But he says, that's not what the numbers tell us. The norm of marriage is dead, not among the elites, but among the working class. The most educated women are the most likely to be married. Marriage has has dropped across the board, but it's dropped much more among the working class. This is something we've talked about, and I think we've seen that data in a million different places, that the liberation of women from the 1960s on, there's a lot of positives from that, no doubt about it. Obviously, the birth control pill, and, uh, we're not here to say that those are, those were negative outcomes, but it did have, it does have ramifications, but it pretty much mostly had ramifications for the working class, not so much for the elites who still graduate from high school and the follow the the success sequence, right. That liberals hate so much because they find it so mm. judgmental, but, but everybody's data shows the same thing. If you graduate high school and either go to college or get a job and you after college or or right after high school you get a job and you get married after you have a job and you have kids after you get married then your chance your chances of success the kids chances of success are just overwhelmingly higher than uh, than any other way and that doesn't mean that any other sequence is uh, is immoral or you know deserves our judgment it's just when we think about the ideal and what clearly works it's pretty interesting and elite women they all basically follow this track. Yep, and it's uh, it's really the working class women who haven't, in in many cases.
0: Yeah, we 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 often talk about these ideas as coming from the elite, and the ideas might, but the practice doesn't. Uh, they're like we talked about in the Charles Murray book, and he quotes it here. They don't preach what they practice, and that's I think that's a real crime. I I like the way uh, Carney addressed the the moral component to the success sequence. Like you were saying, it doesn't have to be. You know, people say this and then he says some commentators dislike success sequence talk because it sounds morally judgmental. And like it does, you know, it's you know, it sounds like somebody saying, see, you did bad and you and now that's what you get. I I like the way he puts it. He says that inference of blame or moral culpability is unnecessary. If you like, you can understand the sequence simply as an instruction manual. Deviating from it is a mistake. It's more likely to give you bad results messing up the order doesn't make you a bad person and following the instructions doesn't make you a good person, but we shouldn't pretend that the order doesn't matter or that it's just a matter of different lifestyles.
1: Yeah. yeah. I thought
0: that's, that's definitely it. I mean, it's like if you buy, if you you know, got some toy for your kid and you put it together without the instructions, it's going to take you longer. You might get it eventually, you know, but more often you're going to put something on backwards and, you know, lose a piece and whatnot. And it's, you're not immoral for having done that. It's just a, a screw up. You know, yeah. and, and people screw up all the time. That's not necessarily sinful. It's just uh, doesn't work well. You know, and I think yeah. that, like, like you said, that he's, he quoted this, uh, there's one study saying that if you do that sequence, the poverty rate of people who, who do that is 3%,
1: which is much That's lower than any other group. Pretty compelling. Yeah. It really is. number.
0: Yeah. yeah. So there's, there doesn't have to be morality even in it. I mean, I think, well, the, I think there is morality in it, but it doesn't if you don't believe in the kind of morality that, that maybe you and I do, it, it's still a good plan. know, <laughs> It still yeah, works.
1: Absolutely. And and going back to the points that, uh, that we talked about from Carney's points that we talked about a minute ago, I think liberals would say, well, the reason people are not getting married is because there's not jobs. Like women are not going to marry guys that, that aren't making money. But then again, we had the Willis to study that show, like even, even when they start making money again, that even that in and of itself isn't enough. And uh, so he, he he finishes this chapter with some good stuff saying, places with more civic activity, regardless of income, have more upward mobility. Religiosity is very strongly positively correlated with upward mobility. we can talk about that for a second. The single most important factor in the upward mobility of a child is the strength of families in the community. If you grow up in a neighborhood, we've heard this before, and I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. If you grow up in a neighborhood full of broken families, even if your own parents stayed together your chances of climbing the ladder the ladder are slim. If on the other hand you grow up amid intact families, even if your own family is not intact, the american dream is alive and well. So what carney concludes here is that the erosion of community is what killed the norm of marriage in the working class and not so much the jobs. Like losing the jobs was a big part of it, but but then the what quickly was lost was the the, the community and people helping and chipping in for and helping each other. And being there for each other, he says, community strength and social capital are the roots of the good life. Community and steady jobs offer men the the work of being a good employee and a family man. Family strength and economic well being are the fruits. So, you have strong families, you have a strong economic situation when you're when you have strong community. Is, I think his overriding point.
0: Yeah, and I think I think so many places have gotten so far down that hole. He quote he quotes uh, Nisbet here on the definition of alienation 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 saying individuals who not only are without community but fail to see the draw of community anymore and that's yeah. that's most likely in a place where these institutions have been gone for years you know you might hear your dad talking about back in the 70s it was this and that and you know things were better but now those things have been gone for so long you know various there's no local charities either because the government's taken over every sort of uh social charity and everybody who's left in town doesn't have money to donate to it if there were a private charity so all these things kind of go away and the generation that's coming up now doesn't even know they ever existed except as you know the way we know you know the holy roman empire existed but we, we didn't see it you know i mean it's it's these things are like something we read in the book so if you're in such a place you don't even know what you're missing, and I think that he, he yeah. points that that's kind of what brings people back to a guy like Trump who says, yeah, I, I, I see what you're going through, and it's bad, and I'm the one to fix it. And because they didn't grow up with the intermediary institutions that used to be between them and the government, they think all that's left is, well, I can't fix it myself. So it must be the people in Washington are going to have to fix it because there's nothing else here. There's no state government that doesn't do anything. Local government doesn't do anything. Local institutions are thin on the ground. Don't have any money or power. Yeah, it must be. It must be that the president is going to fix things for us. And you, you, you're going to. I mean, we see that on the other side too. People who think everything's going to be great now because because Joe Biden's coming in. Yeah, it's like he, neither one of these guys is uh, going to change what's happening in your town. You know, you might feel better about one or the other, but they're both they're both so far removed and the programs they have are so distant that it's not really bringing anything back that was lost.
1: Yeah. And put a finer point on it. Carney does. He, he, he goes through all of these stats and they are killer. White men are not working. He says people often stay in their hometown. Even if there's some job in some new industry waiting for them off somewhere new mobility, mobility is the lowest for non-college workers. We've talked about this before. Social Security Disability Insurance climbed from 5.5 million in 2002 to 8.8 million in 2016. SSDI disability is basically what we're saying is you're you're too disabled to work at all, and disability claims they rise with unemployment or, or, or with you know with with the economic downturns, which is pretty clear indication that. It has a lot less to do with actual disability and a lot more to do with how people see their job prospects Mm -hmm. dropouts from the workforce. Also, this is, this is the kicker. And of course I've also seen this (laughs) so many times. My, my wife complains when she sees this with, uh, with husbands, but dropouts from the workforce actually don't do much in the way of childcare or help for others either. They just watch TV and basically play video games. Almost half take pain medications daily. Uh, an astounding 57% are collecting disability. Do we really think that many people are disabled? No. Deaths of despair, more white men drinking themselves to death, overdosing and killing themselves, you know, the deaths of the despair rose in all segments of the population but most significantly among white Americans who have no college degree. Now, again, like let's just let's think about these folks in the context of the horrific events at the Capitol you know, at the beginning of January. I mean, it's almost like a primal scream. Yeah. And uh, you and I are not the ones who are going to be apologists for these guys. I think, frankly, every one of them should be thrown in prison. Mm-hmm. I, I think they should be prosecuted, every single one of them. Yep. That said, like Carney's trying to de- describe to us, like, who are these people and what motivates them? You know, the, the, the mainstream media and the left will say they're motivated by white national, white racism, which I just... I'm sure some are, but, but like you read these stats and you read these stories and you, you know, the people that you and I know and see their lives. And you're just like, that's not it. You know, there's, there's a big piece of their life that's missing. And the, the left and the liberals will say, well, it's jobs. And, and it's kind of like, yeah, that's part of it. But I think Carney is kind of like filling in the rest of the picture, which is like having a good job is part of it but another huge part of it maybe the much bigger part is having those connections having the meaning in your life having a purpose you know having a reason to get up you know because your neighbors are relying on you or you know you're the t- you're the the little league baseball coach and so you just got to get out there and do it or you know you have people who rely on you and trust you and and you you have a purpose and and a role in the in your community and in your society like when everything is nationalized everything is Everything is federal, and you know all state and local stuff. There's not even state and local news anymore, basically. And yeah, you really don't know even know what's going on in your own town, but you know everything that's going on in uh, a celebrity's life and in the life of X, Y, Z politicians. And so that's where your obsession lies, and uh, and your ability to affect it is like nothing, n- nil. And so it it just it just breeds this nihilism. I think that's uh, that's just much bigger than. Then you know these base concerns of the liberal media will kind of paste on these guys. I don't know. What do you think?
0: Yeah, I think. And to that point, he made an interesting connection that I hadn't really thought about about how we think of centralization and individualization as opposites. But here, for the reasons you're just talking about, he ties them together. I mean, if everything gets centralized, and you know, their only source of relief if something bad happens to you is to go to the government. Well, then you're, you're very isolated and that's, and it's, and it goes the other way too. If everybody's isolated and nobody's working together, nobody's helping out his neighbor, you know, nobody's involved in these activities where other people are depending on you, then where else do you look except to Uncle Sam? He must be the one who's going to fix this. And that, I, th- I think um, when he profiled some of these more religious communities where people look to each other first in networks, not just in networking in that sort of lawyer corporate sense but in the original sort of you know who do you know you know somebody's laid off you might say oh you know my my cousin's shop is hiring maybe you could talk to him that sort of thing if you don't talk to anybody all day you're never going to make that connection there's no if you're just in your apartment all day and the only people you talk to are the ones you play video games with online or you know yell at in chat rooms and and comment sections that's not a real there's no community there there's nobody there's going to really help you out maybe once in a while something like that happens, but typically people helping each other has to have to actually see each other and meet meet each other and and know each other face to face and say, yeah, you're a good guy. It's a shame what happened with your job, but maybe, you know, let me talk to some people. I know some people who who are hiring, you know, I can help you out or maybe, Oh, you know, you, you broke your leg. Well, let me, I can, I can cut your grass for you this month, you know, until you're back on your feet. That's no problem. Yeah, That's that sort of thing. And that's what he's talking about is the American dream more than, just getting more money in your pocket it's you know making those connections and living that good life of community where we help each other it it made me think of the book the first book we read on this podcast um the conscience of a conservative by barry goldwater where he he talked about how the left paints you know conservatives as obsessed with money because we like capitalism but he he kind of spun it the same way and said you know marxism is the thing that's obsessed with money that's that's the thing that's dividing us in class and just concerned about who has and who doesn't have and I'm sure we all have the same conservatives then and now we're interested in community and interested in these things that you can't really measure with a graph but you can you can measure in the way you know it's you can measure it in your heart that sounds corny but it's you know you, the way you feel about your community is going to do a lot for you as a person and you know just how you how you live how you get through life i mean we um Ben Shapiro famously says, facts don't care about your feelings and all that. Yeah. <laughs> but but how you feel about yourself and how you feel about your life, I think, affects how you go out and try to do better. And if you feel isolated, if you feel like there's no hope, you might be the guy, you know, with the buffalo horns on his head charging into the Capitol. Right. You know, where you might be the one who's trying to burn down a courthouse in Portland this summer. It's the same kind of feeling. It's just whether you go left or right. So I, I, I thought that was... There was a lot here that I, you know, a lot of things that I think we'd individually discussed, but he puts them together in a really, I think, a new way.
1: I agree. And so we'd hope that uh, we get to the end of the book and we're like, what's your answer, Tim? And uh, he's he's very candid. He says he says he's not going to write a, a solutions chapter because, according to Carney, you can't write a chapter when the solution is mostly you should go to church or you should start a t-ball team. Or you should create an institution such as a weekly coffee with other older guys, or you should attach yourself to a little platoon and just volunteer there. You should spend less time watching the cable shows and more time asking after your neighbors. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. You know, he he says labor unions could be reinvigorated. Something you've talked about quite a bit, Mm -hmm. but, but then calls for like, let's get the, let's get the governments out of the way of civil society. You know, this is obviously, uh, as, as old as conservatism as old as Goldwater and, and the quest for community and, and, uh, you know, every book that we've read is like govern the centralized safety net programs need to be reconsidered. And you, you and I have talked about this many times, you know, before, like, well, there's an upside because there were people falling through the cracks before Mm -hmm. and that wasn't right. And so that needed to be addressed. While at the same time, so much stuff that uh, people used to do together is now stuff that's, mandated from on high and uh and p- people are no longer having those opportunities to be there for one another to help one another and you know deal with a neighbor that you don't particularly like but you know you got to work together kind of thing and so there's got to be a middle ground maybe
0: yeah you know and i've heard i've heard people on the left criticize this idea saying oh well we should have less efficient local charities just so that your aunt can feel good about working at the soup kitchen like what the point of charities is to help the poor right yeah that's the main point of it for sure but all of these things of people helping each other do the fact that they build up institutions in the community where people can be it helps people be self-reliant and he gets into this and we don't have time to get into the whole discussion about self-reliance versus it takes a village but it's kind of both and you know we we do help each other and the fact that those institutions exist is part of giving people something to do is it's not just a, a feel good thing for those who are well off it, it, it matters. And I, I think that's, yeah, there's so much here and he's right. Most of it is just go out and do something. That's, that's the way you can change things in your own little way. I, th- I think about this a lot because, you know, now that my, how did these institutions develop in the first place? And I think, it, you know, Tocqueville talked about it. Americans get together to do stuff, especially in the old days, because there wasn't any government, you know, our yeah, government need, our government didn't do much, you know, it delivered the mail yeah, there was an army, you know, but it really, you know, if you wanted something built in your town, I mean, it didn't even used to build roads, you know, I mean, we didn't used to do much of anything. So people did it themselves. And each, and you know, some of those things should be done by the government now. Sure. I'm, I'm not a privatize the roads guy. But I don't I think, I don't think we're going to get back to that until it gets bad. You know, until the, yeah, yeah. Until the deficit spending around. finally just overwhelms us and we can't provide services anymore. Until we can keep keep pumping out fake money, we're you know there's no reason to stop, and nobody in Congress seems to want to stop. Yeah, yeah. So we're just going to keep throwing more money at it, and it's not going to rebuild anything. It'll keep us alive. I feel like it's not going to. We can't rebuild until there's a need to rebuild, and there's not going to be a need to be until something fails badly, which I don't yeah. think anyone really wants to see. But I don't. I'm not sure what the other solution is.
1: Well, not depressing note. That's all the time <laughs> we have. <laughs> Hopefully our next, maybe another book down the road will have better answers for us. But I do feel like he, uh, he gave us a, a pretty clear dissection of the situation and I, I kept reading cause I really enjoyed it. You know, I'm not, not enjoyed the, you know, the negativity, but you know, I, it was, there was a lot of good insights here. So anyway, that's Carney catch us next time.